0: Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4 or turn back to Nehemiah 4. we We're going to continue our study through the book of Nehemiah this morning, picking up there chapter 4 verse 1. And before we dive in, I'm going to ask the Lord to bless our time together though, so you join me in prayer. Lord God, your word says that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a, a light unto our path. So, Father, as we come to receive the food of your word that nourishes our souls this morning, we do pray that you would uh, illuminate our path to us, that you would shed light where there is darkness in our lives. Lord, we, we pray that, as the psalmist says elsewhere, Lord, that. Uh, in in looking at and meditating on the text of Scripture this morning, that you would help us to store up your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. And in doing this, Lord, we, we do pray that you would use this time to conform us more to the image of your Son, and we ask it in his precious name. Amen. As an extension of his ministry, the great... Pastor-theologian Charles Spurgeon started a publication in 1865 called The Sword and the Trowel. No doubt if you've hung around Baptist life very long, you're probably uh, familiar with it or have heard of it before. The purpose of the the monthly publication was to highlight and to, to advocate for ministries characterized by sound doctrine. It became widely popular, and it was immensely helpful to pastors and to laypersons alike. In the first edition of this publication, he laid out the aim of the magazine, and he gave a little bit of an explanation as to the name of the magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. He wrote this, "...to widen the bounds of Zion..." And gather together the outcasts of God's people is our heart's desire. We would sound the trumpet and lead our comrades to the fight. We would ply the trowel with untiring hand for the building up of Jerusalem's dilapidated walls and wield the sword with vigor and valor against the enemies of the truth. You can hear in Spurgeon's words there how he he drew his inspiration for the magazine from the very text that we're considering this morning. In our text, Nehemiah has taken on the role of, of leading the charge in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He desired to see God's promise of restoration for the Jews come to fulfillment for the glory of God among the nations. And today we're going to find in the text the the first serious opposition to this work as the people of God labored to advance the kingdom of God. In the publication of The Sword and the Trial, Mr. Spurgeon made it clear that in his day, that work of building the kingdom was not done. And he also made it clear that the need to persevere against opposition was not over either. And since those realities persist in our day, my hope this morning is that in looking at this text, that that we would be encouraged and challenged to engage in that same work as faithfully as both Nehemiah and Mr. Spurgeon did. The main point that the author seeks to make in this chapter is this. Challenges to kingdom work should be met with prayer, prudence, and perseverance. Challenges to kingdom work should be met with prayer, prudence, and perseverance. The author labors to show this by recording a threefold progression of challenges that meet the ongoing work of rebuilding the wall. In each of these progressions, where the the opposition to the work grows more and more intense, we find Nehemiah leading the people of God to respond in the same manner each and every time. Each time a challenge arises, Nehemiah leads the people to the use of prayer and prudence, all the while persevering in the work at hand. Since these are the primary takeaways From the text, they're going to serve as the sermon points this morning as well. Responding to kingdom opposition with prayer, with prudence, and with perseverance. But before we can get to the the takeaways from the text, we need to understand what exactly is going on in this fourth chapter of Nehemiah. The narrative picks up in verse 1. Look at it there. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and jeered at the Jews. So, the leader that's been identified of the opposition, Sanballat, this this leader was looking on Jerusalem, and he began to mock and taunt all of those that were laboring in the Lord's work there. His taunts were were directed at first just toward the Jews, and a direct assault. On them and their work that they were doing. And then he began to ridicule the Jews among those that opposed the work with him. Look at verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they... Revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? The substance of of Sanballat's ridicule here is is multi-layered, and and it is biting. The various people groups that surround Judea are coming together, and and Sanballat leads the pack in saying that the Jews are too weak. Feeble, he calls them. He says that they're, they're too few for such a large project. But not only do they mock the size of the Jews, they they more piercingly mock the strategy and the motivation that God's people use. The scoffers ask, will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Now, that can be interpreted a couple of different ways, but both of them are harshly discouraging to the Jews. Either the scoffers are rhetorically asking, Do they think they're just going to work hard and finish the work in a day and then, you know, have a, a dedication ceremony to the Lord? Or they could be asking a bit differently, a bit more brazenly, do they think they can just make a sacrifice to God and then magically He'll work for them and finish up in a day? Either way, the substance is really the same the enemies of God's people are looking on the kingdom work and they're shaking their heads saying, you think you'll be able to trust God and it'll just all work out, huh? Yeah, right. And you know these taunts, don't you? When you're trying with all of your might to devote yourself to the work that God has given you to do and as you do it, People in your life just deride you. They begin taunting you, perhaps even to their friends, saying, get a load of this guy. He doesn't know how the world works at all. He's just going to pray and hope that everything works out. He's just going to pray and hope that God uses him in his kingdom. Okay. And they demean you. Not for a lack of work, but but for predicating your work on the foundation of trusting God to complete it and to to make use of it for His glory. These taunts haven't gone away, have they? Yet the ridicule doesn't stop there. Look at the last question of mockery that Sanballat asked. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Literally, the term revive here is to heal. The idea is that the rubble was too great to to dig through, and the stones were too damaged to make use of. Stones that had been charred in fire were obviously prone to disintegrate. So the opposition opposition wasn't just criticizing the, the methods and the motivation of the work. They were criticizing even the material that these Jews had available to them. And finally, Tobiah adds to this scoffing. But he, he adds to it by making fun of what their work will amount to, in his estimation. He says, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break their stone wall. So there's mockery about the process, there's mockery about the pieces used, and there's mockery now then about the product that their building efforts might produce. And uh, we should just stop for a moment here and recognize the fact that though the building efforts of the Jews are long past now, this ridicule remains with the people of God. It it remains in the world toward the people of God. These types of taunts come from worldly-minded people all the time. Even, very often, it comes from people who think themselves to be mature Christians. But in truth, they're they're worldly-minded at base. They, They see not with any amount of spiritual perspective. They see only with a pragmatic perspective. And so they hurl biting comments. Biting comments that those who are just seeking to labor for the Lord, trusting Him to make use of their labors for His glory. Again, nothing, friends, has changed since Nehemiah's day. And the taunting is not the only opposition that Nehemiah's people were met with. Soon, these opposing taunts turn to opposing tactics. We read of this escalation in verse 7 and 8. Look there with me. Verses 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And so initially, the enemies of Jerusalem, they didn't perceive the work as significant. They thought that it would amount to nothing, and therefore it wouldn't pose any issue for them when they wanted to take advantage of the city. So they they simply insulted the Jews in their labors. But, as the work continued, they began to see the progress of God's people, and they were enraged by it. So much so that they organized a military strike to stop the work there in Jerusalem. You can almost hear the arrogant murmuring. Those those Jews, they they think there's something. We'll show them. We'll make them realize who really holds the power in this part of the world. And the opposition didn't even stop there. Uh, Apparently there was a, a progression to the aggression of the enemy forces. So much so that they were not content to merely stop the work, they began plotting to kill the inhabitants of the city. Look at the shift in language in verse 11. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And it's important to recognize here that the Ashdodites that occupied the land directly west of Judea, they had not been previously mentioned as allied with Sanballat and Tobiah in the narrative of Nehemiah. And with their joining in the opposition, Nehemiah and those in Jerusalem were now completely surrounded by enemy forces. To the north, south, east, and west, the Jewish people were encircled now by opposition. And that opposition had grown fierce. As if that weren't enough. By this time, the challenges to fulfilling God's purposes for the city were coming not just from without, but from within God's people. If you back up to verse 10, you can see it. Uh, Verse 10 tells us, In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. As we'll see in a moment, this, this was because Nehemiah had taken some of those who'd been working on the wall and stationed them as guards against potential attackers. The number of excavators and builders had decreased. So naturally, then the strength of those who built was was growing weaker. And that's still not the full measure of the challenge to the work. Verse 12 enlightens us to the last challenge. There we read, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. No doubt many of those that were working there to rebuild the wall had come from these surrounding Jewish villages throughout Judea. And as word of the imminent invasion by the surrounding nations spread, those villagers came and they, they pleaded with their friends and their families to return. To, to return home. As the enemies would, would pass by many of these small towns, it would be much more probable that those enemy forces would leave these small towns alone if all the enemies, or excuse me, if all the men were at home. And so they, they came to Jerusalem and they, they pled for their friends and their family to return home. Perhaps. The enemy forces would be more hesitant to do them harm that way. Not to mention, the the seething hatred for the work in Jerusalem had grown so intense that their friends and, and family simply didn't want them the subject of the wrath that was to come from these forces on Jerusalem. So this is the plight of Nehemiah and those that were working to see God's promises come to fulfillment. The taunting had escalated to tactical opposition. The labor force had been reduced to establish a protective guard in the city, so the labor force was was growing weary. And amid that, physical and and mental despair, there was this crisis of heart concerning the pleas of their families and friends to return to their hometowns. So, So the natural question is, well, what's the godly response to all this? I mean, if we're just going to interpret the context and look at the situation, maybe the Lord really doesn't want this to go forward, right? Should we just pay attention to what's going on around us? What is the godly response to this sort of situation? Well, that's precisely what the author records for us. The first exemplary exemplary response to kingdom challenges we find in the text is that of prayer. We've seen in the narrative of Nehemiah already that Nehemiah is a man devoted to prayer. So it shouldn't surprise us to know that this was not only one of his responses to the situation at hand, it was the first response to the various situations as they arise. When the enemies were mocking the kingdom labors of the builders in verses 1 through 3, look at Nehemiah's response in verse 4 with me. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have proved excuse me, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. In the face of the opposition, we don't find Nehemiah responding in like manner to the enemies of God and his people. Now, where are Nehemiah's thoughts and words directed? To God. And his prayer is is no light, trite, pre-coffee morning prayer, right? No, this is what can only be categorized as an imprecatory prayer. That that is a prayer that invokes judgment on the enemies of God. But mind you here, as you think about that, that Sanballat and those with him have gone so far as to mock the Jews' worship of God, derisively asking, "Will will they make sacrifice to God? in hopes that He'll work for them. Imprecatory prayers like this are used legitimately in the Scriptures. However, we we find them sparingly throughout the text of Scripture, which should again indicate to us the grave situation at hand here for those that were laboring for the Lord. And and, and, and it should indicate to us the depth of hatred toward God that characterized these opponents. Nonetheless, when, when faced with Hostility toward the clear plans and purposes of God. Nehemiah did not jump to engage the enemy. He first engaged God. But not only did Nehemiah respond to the opposition in this way, he led by example, and the text is clear, that others joined in this type of response as well. When the opposing forces began to organize themselves for an attack on the city, the text says in verse 9, And we prayed to our God. So when the the people of God faced imminent danger, not only was it the response of the leaders to go to God in prayer, it was the, the response of the faithful throughout the city of God to go to Him in prayer. But... What's what's remarkable about this, friends, is that even as the, the circumstances surrounding Nehemiah's prayer in verse 4 had evolved and intensified, now with the situation at hand in verse 8, the text is telling us that the faithful response to God's people or from God's people remains the same. Even though the situation had evolved, even though the situation had grown more intense, God's people's response remain the same. It was to pray. When the people of God are opposed in their efforts to the advancement of the kingdom of God, what should their steadfast response be? Prayer to God. One lesson from this passage, friends, is that no matter what opposition to the kingdom brings... No, no matter the form of the opposition, doesn't matter if it's verbal, if it's physical, perhaps it could be financial, no matter the, the opposition to the kingdom, no matter the degree to which that, that opposition intensifies. What Nehemiah teaches us here is that kingdom advancement will meet opposition, and that that opposition may evolve over time. but our first and foremost response should never evolve. We, church, are to give ourselves to prayer in meeting opposition to the advancement of the kingdom of God. As I was studying this passage and meditating on the the commitment to prayer here in the face of opposition, and The Nehemiah's commitment to advancing the kingdom of God. I I couldn't help but think of the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. You'll remember his words there in verses 37 and 38. In the face of the enormous amount of gospel ministry that needs done, what does Jesus say to his disciples when he sends them out? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. You know, what's interesting about that is that Jesus doesn't observe that the the, the fields are ripe for harvest and then say, so now go reap the harvest. Go, share the gospel. To be sure, Jesus is (laughs) never shy about the necessity of taking action in proclaiming the gospel. But nonetheless, when he observes that the need is great and the provision is small, what does he command his disciples to do? Pray. That's because prayer does a number of things, friends. Certainly, it it petitions God to act for us, but prayer also does a lot of things within us. When we pray about things, it it calls to our memory that we're not in control. God, in His sovereignty, is in control. Which is specifically what Nehemiah charges those in Jerusalem to remember in verse 14. Saying, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Praying also focuses our minds and hearts on God's priorities instead of ours, which is why it's so important to pray God's Word back to Him, as we saw from Nehemiah 1 a few weeks ago. Another significant thing that prayer does that often gets forgotten is that prayer brings us onto the right battlefield. So often we try to fight spiritual battles with non-spiritual means. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then Paul goes through the armor of God, and after going through the armor of God, that the believer is equipped with there, what's the first action that Paul says the Christian should be engaged in if they should be involved in spiritual battle? Verse 18, he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Friends, to put it simply, if you're trying to engage in spiritual battle, The spiritual battle of building God's kingdom. Be that advancement of the kingdom of God through the church. Be that advancement of the kingdom of God through discipleship in your home or your workplace. If it's battling sin in your life. Whatever it is. If you're trying to engage in the spiritual battle of building God's kingdom and you're not giving yourself to prayer, friend, you're not even in the fight. You're shadow boxing. So, when, not, not if, but when you pray th- that, that, that category of the Lord's Prayer, when you pray that daily, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. As you pray about that, are you praying that God would strengthen you for the kingdom work that He has for you to do that day? Do you pray that God would make you a good evangelist and... That he would open up doors and orchestrate opportunities so that you could share the gospel with those that you come in contact with? Do you pray that God would make you a, a good and faithful church member? One engaged in building up and discipling the brothers and sisters among us? If not, friend, then you're not even in the fight. While prayer was consistently the first response to the opposition that Nehemiah and the builders faced, it was not the only opposition. The second uh, excuse me it was not the only response. The, the second response that we find to kingdom challenges is that of prudence. Prudence, the, the use of good judgment, is what we observe from Nehemiah and his leadership of the people there in Jerusalem. We see it in verse 9. As the the anger of God's enemies grew, we already considered their initial response. But but their prayer was immediately followed by prudent planning. Verse 9 says, We prayed to our God and, what did they do? Set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Again, In verse 13, when when the animosity had grown to a tipping point, we read of Nehemiah's defensive plan. Verse 13, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Prudent planning. Some may critique the idea of prudence, as a means of responding to kingdom opposition. Some may think that that theologically, dependence on the sovereign will of God is incompatible with the exercise of critical thinking for kingdom advancement. I have heard people say things like this. They they may believe that prudent planning undermines the verse that we just read from Ephesians chapter 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the Heavenly places. If, our, if the nature of our battle is spiritual, one may ask, well, how can we use finite wisdom to stand against the enemy in our commitment to labor for the Lord? Well, the example of Nehemiah tells us that, that we must first acknowledge that God is sovereign over all things and, and He will bring His promises to pass. And so we, we pray that He Does these things. But secondly, we must evaluate the resources that God has provided us with and allocate them with care. Now you might say, well, that sounds awfully simple for a leadership strategy. And praise God, that's right. (laughs) It is simple. Church, it's important to remember, God does not ask of us what He has not provided for us. He only asks that we be faithful with what He's given us. And, oh, the freedom that comes with the recognition of that fact. There's no division, you see, between the, embracing God's sovereign rule and embracing our circumstantial reality. This was the testimony of Paul when speaking about his labors as an apostle. As he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, Paul diligently labored as an apostle, yet he credited the sovereign hand of God at work in his life to produce what it did. The need for Prudence in in service to a sovereign God is also why Jesus said what he did in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. When sending out his disciples to labor for the advancement of the kingdom in a world that's opposed to the kingdom of God, he said, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. It's really that simple. God does not ask of us what he's not given to us. But what he has given us, he demands us to use diligently for his glory. Bringing the necessity of prayer and prudence together in response to kingdom challenges, Matthew Henry says this, If we think to secure ourselves by prayer without watchfulness, we're slothful, and we tempt God. If by watchfulness, without prayer, we're proud, and we slight God. Either way, we forfeit His protection. God's care of our safety should engage and encourage us to go on with vigor in our duty. As soon as the danger is over, Mr. Henry says... Let us return to our work and trust God another time. And return to their work, they did in our passage. And in so doing, we, we find the final lesson here in responding to kingdom challenges. That is, we are to respond to kingdom challenges with perseverance. We observe the perseverance of Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem throughout the passage. It, amidst the initial mocking of Sanballat and Tobiah, we, we read how God's people responded in verse 6. They were mocking, and then what, would, what do we read in verse 6? So we built a wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. They were not deterred from working to bring God's promises to pass. And and then, when the battle seemed unavoidable, we learn of their readiness to persevere through combat. In verse 14, "...and I looked and arose, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes." So the people of God were ready to wield the sword against the enemies of God. If necessary, they would have persevered through physical harm in order to defend the work that God was doing among their loved ones. And then afterward, verse 15 tells us, when the enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to His work. (laughs) and that's no small feat. Like, we shouldn't just read over that quickly. These people had been through a lot at this point. Uh, Surely, the the, the taunting that they had endured had, had produced certain internal doubts about the legitimacy of their work. The ones who complained of weariness after their labor force was reduced probably weren't rested back up yet. And not to mention, they had just endured the, the, the mental and emotional turmoil of almost coming under siege. Yet as soon as God subverted the plans of the enemies, they simply returned to the work that God had given them to do for His glory. And, and now, the work was undoubtedly more difficult According to the text, the labor force was still diminished. And those who did work were working with one hand on the trowel and a sword in the other hand. But work they did, from sunup to sundown. For security purposes, none of those who lived outside of the city even went home at night. It was a labor that not only required them to work hard, it required of them, at least for a time, to orient their lives around what God had purposed to do through them. Friends, if you've studied the Bible for any length of time, you know that the New Testament doesn't teach anything different than what we find in this passage. If you've come to the saving knowledge of salvation in Christ through His substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection, then you know that this side of the cross, we also labor for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Motivated, in fact, by a life-altering grace. While those in Jerusalem labored to restore the city's walls for the glory of God, we labor for the heavenly city. The heavenly city of Jerusalem that, that Zechariah tells us has no walls. And friends, theirs was a temporary labor because they would see the completion of the wall of Jerusalem. Yet we may or may not in our lifetime see the revelation of the heavenly city of Jerusalem. So all the more, church, we we must embrace this need for perseverance. And if we're to embrace the need for it, We we must see that perseverance is as spiritual an act right alongside prayer and prudence. It is just as spiritual as any of the others, this act of perseverance. That's why 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The act of perseverance is is really an act of entrusting yourself to God's sovereign care. Having prayed and asked the Lord for what's needed, and planned as best you can with what He's giving you, persevering in the work is simply what active trust in the life of a believer looks like. In the life of faithful Christians, perseverance should really be the, the culmination of, of prayer and prudence. This is the life that we're called to, church. Laboring for the Lord. And in responding to kingdom opposition with prayer, with prudence, and with perseverance. And in that way, Maybe we can join Mr. Spurgeon with the trowel in one hand, building up the kingdom of God and the sword in the other, defending the truth against all who oppose it. Mm. May we give ourselves to that work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You We thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. That in it, you you clearly do light our path. And you show us the way. Nights can oftentimes seem dark, Lord. And opposition can cloud our vision. But Lord, we thank you that you have given us the bright light of your word. That we might look to it and know how to take the next steps in front of us faithfully. Lord, I do pray. That you would build us to be a people that face kingdom opposition with prayer, with prudence, with perseverance. That you would make us a strong people, God, that desire to labor for your glory for a long time. And then in so doing, Lord, you would help us again to respond to the challenges in a way that honors and glorifies you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. fantastic word of God this morning. What an encouragement to our souls that as the Jews were facing opposition from within and from without, they determined that they would be faithful. Not because they were strong in themselves, but because they knew the God that they served. They knew the